This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada. Chelsea Regan, and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have one of my absolute favorite authors on the podcast. Today, we have Adib Karam here to talk about his latest book, Kiss and Tell. Now, you might know him from his fantastic books, Darius the Great is Not Okay, and the sequel, Darius the Great Deserves Better. But this book tells the story of gay boy band member Hunter Drake, who is going through his first heartbreak for all the world to see. And because it is 21st century and social media will not go away no matter how hard we try, they are all there to comment on as well. This book is full of heart and insight as well as the vulnerability and wit that you know Adib so well for. I am so excited to ask him all about it. So let's get started. Hey, Adib. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, just tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and about this latest book, Kiss and Tell. For me, well, I have been writing since, I think, probably 2010 or so. Lots of bad books before, you know, one that was passable. I grew up as a theater kid, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. I am Iranian-American. I worked in live events here in Kansas City for a number of years and kind of stopped when the pandemic happened because, you know, people couldn't have events anymore. I really love tea and Pink Floyd and barbecue, and Iranian food. And actually, I'm really enjoying Abbott Elementary right now. Huge fan of Abbott Elementary as well. So amazing. But yes, just a little bit about Kiss and Tell, whatever the I mean, know, blurb is. I mean, I definitely, that. like, summarize Kiss and Tell really well. It is about Hunter Drake, who's out and gay. He's a white boy in a multicultural Canadian boy band, and really trying to navigate how to be his authentic self while coping with the pressures of fame, the public eye, the way that our media landscape consumes and commodifies identity, especially for young people and marginalized people, as well as just like having fun being on a tour with like four of his best friends in the world. No, they definitely have a lot of fun too. There's the serious parts, but then there's also some really great, just a bunch of 17 year old boys on a tour bus. And what does that mean? What does that look like? <laughs> right. Those were always the most fun to write, especially anything that involved the pranks that they play on each other. I had a lot of fun with that. No, I'm sure. You can definitely tell. And I'm very excited to talk about Kiss and Tell, but I do want to say, just for anyone who hasn't read Darius the Great yet, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Go out and get it. I read it a little while ago, and I was actually on a plane when I finished it, 
and I've never oh, wanted no. a plane to land so badly just so that I could download Darius the Great Deserves Better. I was, like, so desperate to get the next one. I was like, this plane needs to land now. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were crying uncontrollably on a plane <laughs> because apparently the lower atmospheric pressure on planes makes you more susceptible to crying, which is why I never read sad books on planes anymore. I definitely got very emotional. I don't know if I, like, outright cried, but I was definitely like, I don't need anyone on this plane looking at me right now. <laughs> right. Look away! But no, they are absolutely incredible. Everyone go read them right now. That's my pitch for them. But Kiss and Tell, yes. In this book, you've given us another very vibrant and complex character to root for, which I love, in Hunter Drake. He's fantastic. I was wondering what, after sort of Darius the Great, gave you the inspiration to write what I think is a little bit more of like a larger-than-life boy band story centered around this guy. Yeah, it's funny. I actually wrote a version of Kiss and Tell before writing Darius. I first had the idea back in... 2014 about a gay boy in a boy band and at the time I think I was really grappling with being out in my professional life and kind of what that meant and the way people saw me and so it was very much like a coming out narrative that also had uh, a little bit of a murder mystery in it and that someone was like trying to murder Hunter because he was getting too popular. I wrote it in 2014 finished it in early 2015 and then a book got announced called Killed the Boy Band, and I was like, well, someone stole my idea about murdering boy bands. And so in a rage, I shelved the book and started writing something else that really ended up being Darius. And after writing Darius the Great Deserves Better, I found myself kind of in a very different place thinking about queerness and existing as a queer person in public. And I found myself thinking about Hunter again. And so he ended up being a really great character to tell a different story about what it means to be out about how to live your life with pride and integrity and also with less murder. Because it turns out, like, if you're going to write a mystery, you kind of need to know what happens. And I am a right-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type of person, so I never know what happens until the book is over. And while I think that has worked well for me in very character-driven stuff, I do not think it works well if you're trying to plant red herrings or clues or anything like that that goes into a murder. I love that. Could that be the sequel to this book, then, if <laughs> someone's trying to kill him? Oh, I don't know. So He's been through so much now. I don't think I want to try to kill him anymore. It was really funny, though, because I got to like just insert OSHA violation after OSHA violation as like people kept sabotaging the sets and stuff. It was kind of funny. At one point, someone gets electrocuted by a, an electric guitar. So That stage crew's fair. never going to work again. <laughs> I know, truly, right? That's incredible. I love that Hunter specifically is in a boy band. It's not like they're a traditional band or even he's just a solo musician but he's in a boy band how did you land on like that specific element to the music industry that you wanted to focus on you know boy bands are a genre that are very much marketed and built on the backs of young people in a way that i don't think really any other i mean you know all of pop generally exists because of teen girls you know supporting it so boy bands felt like a logical place to explore teenagerdom also there's something a little bit chaotic about them that i really enjoy I don't think it's exclusive to boy bands, but I do think they really pull it off well in the same way that, like, the Spice Girls was very anarchic and fun as well. But I can't think of any big examples like the Spice Girls and the, like, girl groups, whereas I can think of lots of boy bands that had a similar chaotic energy. And I think also boy bands are a very queer genre of music, even when they're painfully heterosexual. It's five good-looking boys. Sometimes they're wearing mesh tank tops. Sometimes they're wearing entirely denim outfits with terrible haircuts. But there's just always something a little queer about that. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, too, a lot of times with boy bands, someone involved in the band will come out later. They don't start as out, sort of Hunter being out while he's still, like, at the prime of boy bandom is a little bit more, 
unique to the situation, but a lot of times one or two members will come out later. I always think of Lance Bass, I think, is mm-hmm. the big example from my childhood. I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. So I was always a Backstreet Boy fan over in sync. Oh, no. Now we're going to have to fight. Uh, oh, yes. Fine. I'm sorry. Nick <laughs> Carter was with like the middle part, Total Awakening. Just the entire sync experience when I was like four or five was just everything. I was obsessed for years. I think my mom took me to see like their concert and let us dance in the aisles. It was very exciting. Oh, well, uh, or their I'm, movie concert. <laughs> I'm a tiny bit older than you, so I was definitely in high school during that phase. And so I had a very different response <laughs> to them. No, definitely. And the other thing I really love about boy bands, too, especially with your writing, is that all of your books have at the heart of them this really great theme about the beauty and vulnerability that can exist in male friendships, especially when the guys are willing to sort of share the truth of their feelings or when you can see those honest conversations that they have privately. And I think boy bands really relate themselves to that because it's a group of young guys. And in this case, they're genuinely friends as well, which is really nice. I was wondering if you see as you're writing that as an important element of your stories or if it just sort of comes naturally as from the stories that you're hoping to tell. I think it's a little of both. I think I'm naturally inclined to want to explore male friendships, especially meaningful platonic male friendships, as kind of a way of dismantling toxic masculinity. When I think back to my own childhood and kind of early adulthood, it's really easy to see all the damage that toxic masculinity did to me that the barriers in communication with my guy friends caused, and also to see that some of the most meaningful moments in my life were ones where those barriers came down and I had like heart-to-hearts with my friends. So I think it's a natural inclination for me, and it's also kind of a mission for me to show the world as I would like it to be, especially for teen boys. Absolutely. And I think it's really powerful, especially in the YA space, especially now we're getting a lot of stories about female friendship and the vulnerability that can exist and and also sometimes the damage that can be done by female friendships. I think it's really powerful to have a voice in that conversation, too, about the power of male friendships and the conversations that are happening in those cases, too, that, you know, as a female, I don't have any experience with. And so it's really interesting to be a fly on the wall for some of that and to get to see the intricacies and the vulnerabilities that can exist there, too, for sure. And you're speaking about toxic masculinity. Another thing I really love about your books is your characters have this sort of tendency to use different sports as a way to stay grounded or decompress or connect with each other. You know, with Darius, it was soccer. In this book, it's hockey. I was wondering if that's something else that stems from your own experience and and helping to turn that sort of what might be considered a breeding ground for toxic masculinity into something a bit healthier and more grounding for these characters. And also how you landed on hockey as the sport for Hunter, because I thought that was a really good choice for him. It's so funny. I was not at all a sports kid, like at all uncoordinated, terrible things. I kind of hate competition. It makes me a little sad if someone has to lose an activity. All my favorite sports are solo ones, you know, where kind of there's a competition, but it's not like, you know, two teams wailing on each other. So I really love like swimming or figure skating, where in a way you're competing against yourself to like do your best. In board games and video games, I really love co-op ones more than I do competitive ones. But I, for some reason, I do find myself writing about sports a lot. And I think part of that is wanting to create space that didn't really exist for me as a queer teenager, a deeply closeted queer teenager, but one that definitely felt sort of unspoken hostility to my presence in those spaces. Also, the older I get, the more I appreciate the way that doing things helps, like doing things physically with your body can help unlock what's going on in your mind. 
you know, especially cisgender boys are very much socialized to value and really be able to open up during side-by-side interaction versus face-to-face interactions. There was a great article that came out early on in the pandemic about why Animal Crossing was so popular. You know, this article posited that it was because visiting other people's Animal Crossing islands was a way of getting side-to-side interaction with them, whereas the pandemic had mostly reduced it to face-to-face, like, digital interactions, and how valuable it was just to be able to wander an island with a friend. And so I think when I use sports in my books, I think that's something I'm getting at, is the way that being side-by-side can help make some conversations and some revelations easier. Yeah, absolutely, because I think Hunter, you definitely have that feeling of him being able to process things better either after or while he's, and I mean, for him, it's really just skating. He's had this accident that has affected his ability to continue to play hockey, like as a competitive sport. And so it's really just about the love of the physical activity for him and the conversations and the insight that he can get in those moments, especially with his best friends, I thought were were really powerful. How did you land on hockey as his sport? Was it like he was Canadian and that was... (laughs) Part of it was definitely that he was Canadian. Part of it was that hockey is one of those sports that feels very physically aggressive in a lot of ways. And I liked the idea of queering that space, that Hunter could go from a very aggressive physical presence and yet also be gay, be tender, and go on to be an out boy band member and like dance and have fun and make a fool of himself. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think hockey as a community and a sport. I grew up in a very hockey-centered household. Both my brother and dad play, and uh, oh, wow. so I, I definitely think hockey could could use a little bit more of that. It can be a very heteronormative sport, for sure, mm-hmm. and a very aggressive one. <laughs> right. It also helped, like, I love figure skating. I started taking figure skating lessons after watching Yuri on Ice and deciding I needed a new hobby. And so certain, like, knowledge was fairly transferable from figure skating to hockey, at least as far as just the feeling of being on the ice the smells and the sights and the kind of weird tang in the air, especially after hockey people have been to my rink because it always smells just a little sweaty afterward. Oh, yeah. Hockey rinks have a smell. They got to air the whole thing out before the figure skaters come in. The minute you said that, I had like a sense memory of it. I was like, yep, absolutely. There's a smell. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, I think there's research that backs this up, but I might be just making things up. But I think smell is one of the senses that is like closest tied to memories. And so I do find myself often trying to invoke smells wherever I can. I've definitely heard that, too, before, so I don't think you're making it up. Or I'm making it up, too, and we're both making it up simultaneously, which would be impressive. Shared hallucination. (laughs) Exactly. Over podcast. That's how that works. I really appreciated that element. The sports elements of your stories are really different than most, I think, especially male-focused sports stories than we get. And I, I really like that about your stories. You know, transitioning a little bit, another huge part of Hunter's struggle is really, and we've talked a little bit about this, is that he's found himself in this massive spotlight. He's kind of one of the front people of this. They're all in a boy band, but like he's writing a lot of the songs. He's very much, or at least he feels like he's very much at the center and in the spotlight. And he feels like there's a lot of pressure on him to be something specific and to act a certain way, to do things a certain way. But what I really liked about your writing is that you showed us that it wasn't all in his head, 
because you showed us everything from think pieces written about him to emails that were being sent from the label, like just among the people working at the label, to even a couple of fan fiction descriptions, which I thought were great, about him and his personal relationships. And these were all places where, like, he had no say in what was being said at all. It was just people talking about him as if they knew him or as if they had any kind of right to have that much of a personal opinion about his, like, personal life. I was wondering if those were always elements of the story that you planned to include or you just found yourself writing more of them as you went. And if you used any sort of real life examples to inspire them, was there anything you were looking at specifically as you were writing it? Yeah, it was very deliberate early on that I was including interstitials and kind of making a media landscape around Hunter. I don't often think about like what themes I'm getting at or what I'm trying to do as a writer, because I think it sounds really pretentious. But in this case, I was trying to do something very specific, which is that I was alternating between putting the reader in the head of Hunter so that they would empathize with him and then also implicating them in the media landscape that surrounds him because all of us take part in it. We exist in capitalism. We can't really avoid consuming media, and we don't always do it in ways that are healthy for us or healthy for the people being consumed. So that was very much at the front of my mind. Several things were taken from times when my own boundaries had been transgressed by people and the way that that made me feel certainly just existing in young adult publishing. You know, we get probably four to six nasty think pieces a year about various elements of it. There are a number of authors who have had their identities up for public consumption in really toxic and damaging ways. And I really just wanted to dig into that and just acknowledge that it's a thing. And I think in particular, it was important for me since I am writing this for teenagers, because one, teenagers are at a stage in their lives where they're really learning to form boundaries and it was important to me to show Hunter setting boundaries and enforcing them. And it was also crucial to me because so many teens are living their lives online, you know, spending time on social media, are getting bullied online, or just kind of dealing with the toxic after effects of life on the internet. I just wanted to tell those teens, hey, we see you. Yeah, I also appreciated that. You both get to see the realistic side of it's really hard to set boundaries. It's hard to set boundaries no matter what age you are or what your situation is. It's even harder to set boundaries when you're young and even harder still when part of your job is or people are telling you part of your job is to be consumable by the people who like you or that you won't have a job anymore if you're not. And so I appreciated that both he struggled with them, but he also modeled a little bit of answers that might work. I think what you said, too, about how it implicates us all is very true, too, because there were moments where I was reading, I think especially some of the think pieces you included in the book, obviously fictional think pieces. I like to call them thoughtless pieces. <laughs> I like that a lot. There were a couple of them where I was like, I could definitely see myself reading something like this about someone and being like, oh, yeah, good point, and like moving on. But when you're reading it after having just heard Hunter's devastation at something that's happening in his actual life, it hits so differently to realize like how personal that is and how someone discussing that about you online is not like a victimless crime. Like there is someone on the other end of that who is feeling that wholly. And even by reading that, we're all involved in the process and in the consumption and capitalization of these people and these people's personalities and their lives and their everything. I thought that was really well done and really powerful for sure. I think the other thing too that you did really well with that element is your books have this really relatable and honest focus on teen sexuality. And I think this book did a really excellent job at explaining how what is healthy exploration 
can so easily be twisted to make young adults feel bad about themselves, about their desires, about how they're feeling, about what they're doing, instead of, like, teaching them to try things safely and respectfully, which is, like, probably more of what we should be teaching young people rather than just, like, what you're doing is bad. And Hunter goes through, I don't want to spoil too much, but Hunter goes through some really rough and honestly pretty homophobic situations involving sexuality throughout this book. And I was wondering, you said you don't, like, set out with, like, a goal in mind with things, but I was wondering if you were hoping that his experience could at least sort of serve as a reminder for young adults that sexuality is something that should be celebrated and not villainized, and the real villains of the story are the ones who are making him feel bad about what is perfectly normal and healthy. Yeah, I don't know if it was a goal so much as it was just a logical outcome of the other elements of the story that, you know, what sets him apart is that he is gay. He's a boy that likes to have sex with other boys. And in every other part of his life, he's extremely privileged. He's white and young and attractive and now rich. But still, that sets him apart. And because what sets him apart was something, you know, sexual, it felt that some of the pain had to be from the way that this part of himself that's a, you know, natural and beautiful part of his existence could be weaponized against him, could be shamed, and could be turned into something really ugly both by the public and occasionally by people that cared about him and still made mistakes out of, you know, anger or fear or alcohol in one particular case. So, yeah, I really wanted to uphold Hunter's dignity and agency, while at the same time acknowledge that it's a complicated situation. Hunter goes through feeling a lot of different ways about it, both, you know, how he thinks about his own sexuality and how he thinks about other people thinking about his sexuality. And I really just wanted to be as honest as I could. Absolutely. And I think honest is really the best way to describe it. I think there's a line in your book that was really powerful. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know what it was specifically about how people really love the idea of, or they love to talk about queer youth being together until they think about what that actually means. They love to hypothesize about his sex life until they learn the answer and then they're appalled. And I'd never thought about it that way, but the minute you do, you start to see exactly that in so many examples in real life and the way that we treat young, white, attractive, wealthy kids who are also queer. They become this commodity that people trade in, but there are parts of it that people want and there are parts of it people don't. And how dare people try and combine those two things to be an actual human being? Indeed. And at the same time, you know, Hunter is really myopic in some ways and that he's so focused on the damage that it's doing to him that he fails to see how widespread that sort of thing is and how it intersects with race and class and ability and gender. You know, one of his bandmates points out, I think being a white gay boy on the Internet is hard driving a queer black woman on the Internet. If you really want to know what hell is, we try to break off pieces of people's humanity and act like it's the whole and I think that's a really damaging way of treating other humans. Yeah, the argument of like, well, famous people are protected by all their money and adoring fans is like, they're still human beings. Like, they're still people on the other end of this who deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. And there are fans who are listening to what you're saying and thinking, well, that's me too. Is that how you feel about me as well? And the power that that can have too. Yeah. I appreciate that you said that too about how – Part of the story, too, is about Hunter learning that, yes, his struggles are very valid, but there are others as well, and his friends are dealing with things that he doesn't realize or that he can't see based on his own privilege. 
it's less than in the Darius books, as you mentioned, the Darius books are about uh, Iranian-American as the main character, but this story also does have Iranian-American representation. I was wondering if, similar to how Hunter's feeling in this book, if you feel that you have a responsibility using your platform and your success to continue to share stories about this identity that you share, I'm sure, with many of your readers. And I really appreciated that you continued to be honest about Kayvon's experience, even while the main focus of the story was Hunter figuring out all of his stuff. I was wondering about writing that as a secondary character for you and what that was like. Yeah, I don't think of it so much as a responsibility, so much as I do a pleasure to center Iranian-ness and the Iranian-American diaspora, and in particular queer Iranians in my books. I cannot imagine writing a book that doesn't include Iranians in some significant way. And I knew that to explore what I needed to explore with Hunter, he had to be white, because a big part of his journey is grappling with the way that his whiteness shields him from so much, even as his queerness paints a target on his back. And so, since Hunter was white, Kayvon kind of had to be Iranian. And at the same time, it was also really fulfilling to write an Iranian love interest, because in writing Darius, I got to be in Darius's mind as he was experiencing attraction and love and having that be reciprocated. But with Kayvon, we only saw him through Hunter's eyes, and we got to see him as beautiful and loving and brave, occasionally messy, but a whole person worthy of love and desire. I think that's just as important for Iranian-Americans to read. I never saw someone like me being the love interest in a book growing up, and I think it's really powerful to see someone in a book that looks like you being loved. Absolutely. I love, too, that in this world you created, too, him and his brothers had a band that was very successful and was using, like, music inspired from that culture as well. It made me really want that band to, like, exist. I I kind of want both of them to exist. (laughs) I was going to say, is it possible? Can you, like, team up with a musician and make some of these songs a reality? I would love to hear Poutine. I just, like, every time they mentioned that song, I was like, I I need to know what this sounds like. I do have more lyrics than are in the book exist for pretty much every song that appeared in the book i kind of pared down what amount of lyrics was in it and most of them also do have chords along with them but i hate singing for an audience so those may literally never see the light of day but maybe someday maybe someday people will know the whole songs you got it if you put it out online i'm sure someone will (laughs) sing it for you i know right that brings me to another one of my questions i mean Part of the pressure that Hunter is under and part of this world he inhabits is so dictated by fan and stan culture. And I think this book does a really good job of showing how that can be both a blessing and a curse. You know, there are a lot of moments where Hunter is really specific about how appreciative he is of the people who are his fans. And he understands how important that part is to his job and his career and his success. But, you know, at the same time, Fans can feel like they have a lot of personal interest in what's happening. They have a lot of opinions, and they feel that if those opinions are not transitioned into reality exactly the way they want them to be, then someone has done something wrong. And that can get even trickier when you're not talking about fictional characters. You're talking about real human beings. I was just wondering, for you and sort of your experience Are there elements of fan culture that you really appreciate, or are there elements that you would want to change or ways you would want that to change slightly if you, you know, had a crystal ball and could make that happen? Yeah. I mean, I've been parts of many fan communities over the course of my life. Fandom is an important part of my consumption of media. But I do think I benefit in some ways in that I 
kind of came of age in an era with less internet. I mean, there was internet. I spent a lot of my early teens on internet relay chat rooms about the Transformers, like the toys and the cartoons and the movies. Not the Michael Bay ones. Those were terrible. But it's a beautiful way of making connections amongst people. At the same time, I feel like it has often been a problem, and I do think the internet exacerbates the problem of parasocial relationships, where just because you see someone's online presence, you convince yourself that you have an actual personal connection to them when you don't. I've seen the way that that affects media figures. I've seen the way that that sometimes affects authors, because, you know, authors have to live online. I've seen the way that that has occasionally affected me. And so, yeah, it was definitely the front of my mind in a lot of ways. And so if I could change one thing about fan culture, I think it would be it would be some way of reinforcing that boundary and reminding people that artists are already giving you their art. They don't owe you their personhood as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that is so true. And something I think about with this podcast, too, about how, like, even authors are asked to, like, sell their personhood sometimes to sell books and how do we try and make that less <laughs> icky, if at all possible. How do we keep it focused on the art and what people are putting out into the world rather than the stuff that they'd rather keep personal and private? And then I think at the same time, what's interesting about this book, too, is that there are parts of himself that Hunter wants to share with the world. There are things he wants to use his platform for. We were talking about boundaries, but I think you do a really good job in this book of sharing some ways that that platform can be used even small ways that that platform can be used to benefit others around him and to help the world. Are there ways that you wish celebrities or people in the public eye would use their platforms to benefit those around them a bit more? Are there things that you'd like to see more of or things that you thought of as you were writing the book? That's such an interesting question. And I don't know that I do because part of what's going on with Hunter and what goes on with almost all people is that what is publicly presented is only a small fraction of their activism. And so I don't think that there's any ways that I want people to be doing different or doing more because there's no way I can know everything that someone is doing. You know, someone might be completely quiet on social media and on traditional media and yet giving millions of dollars to social justice causes to fixing problems in this world, and yet no one would ever know because they don't perform it. I think I'm very uncomfortable with performative activism. I recognize the importance of being vocal and raising awareness, but I think sometimes we, as a kind of an internet culture, confuse talking about the thing with doing the thing, and I think doing the thing is what really matters. Absolutely. I completely agree with you, and I think Hunter is very much doing the thing, and I think he struggles with the fact that maybe the world would like him to be talking more about it and doing less of it. And I think he has a good grasp of like, no, it's probably more important that I actually do the things I'm talking about rather than performatively tell you all how great I am because I'm talking about this thing that you want me to be talking about. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. One of my last questions I always ask, are we going to see anything more from Hunter or are you moving on to a new project? Do you know what's coming up next for you? I do know what's coming up next. Most of it is still top secret, so I can't talk about it. Every time. Um, I know, right? That's publishing. You know, we're always working a few years ahead. Um, there will be more novels from me, probably not until 2024. We'll see. However, I do have a short story in an anthology called Eternally Yours. It's a paranormal romance anthology that comes out this fall. It's my first ever short story and my first over paranormal romance, obviously. And it's sort of a gay Little Mermaid or Splash type situation. 
with queer merfolk. So I think it's cute and fun and hopefully also like deep in some ways. Haha, <laughs> cuz it's about the ocean, but hopefully asking some big questions also about like love and fate and stuff. We went back and forth on the title for the short story. I don't remember where we ultimately landed. I'm pretty sure it's going to be called Kiss the Boy cuz you know under the D was uh, rejected. That was a Can't imagine why. <laughs> I always have a joke title. I always have a joke title for the books anyway. Uh, you know, Darius the Great deserves better was jokingly titled Darius the Great is not straight for a long time. So the anthology, though, is called Eternally Yours, and it's a bunch of fantastic authors. And it comes out, I want to say, like, the last Tuesday in August, but now I'm blinking. That sounds so good. Also, I love Kiss the Boy. Is, is that a, a Little Mermaid? It is indeed. Yeah. Gotta get that in there when you can. Also, why wasn't Darius the Great is not straight the name of the book? We decided, <laughs> so it, we decided the rhyme was a little bit too cutesy. I guess it would be selling a slightly different book, maybe. <laughs> I mean, he isn't straight. Yeah, no, that's fair. But it definitely like, but yeah, the, makes you think maybe it's going to be a novel in verse or something. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Someone's like, ooh, poetry collection, and not not exactly what they're getting from that book. But, oh, that's fantastic. I love that. And then my last question, you kind of already answered this, but we're talking about boy bands. I feel like everyone has a boy band that they, like, emotionally connect with. I feel like for me as a kid, it was in sync. And then later it was the Jonas Brothers. Don't know if they're technically a boy band, but I'm calling them one. I would one. count them one, yeah, for sure. Yep. I mean, they play instruments, but they're a boy band. I love in this book, too, how you pointed out that that's not mutually exclusive. You can both play instruments and be in a boy band. It's fine. But I was wondering, do you, besides Backstreet Boys, are there boy bands that you have that, like, emotional connection with as you're writing the book that brought to mind? Yeah. I mean, I definitely listened to a lot of One Direction. I was definitely, like, older by the time that they were a thing. But I came to love them, I think, primarily because... They did a number of, like, really good concert films and a good, like, documentary, which was a really great way of, like, looking behind the curtain. And so I kind of, you know, they were not important to me, and they became important to me over the course of writing because, you know, they were great research. And then their documentary in particular managed to be, like, surprisingly insightful. There's one point in the documentary where one of them was like, do you think we'll all be friends in five years? And they're like, probably not. And I was like, oh, painfully honest. And yet it turned out being kind of true because, you know, Zane went and did his own thing and then got into internet fights with all the others. Now I think Liam's doing like NFTs. Niall almost died on a plane recently. Like it's a nightmare. They always have, right after the big success, you get a wild journey for everybody. I'd love to see where Hunter and his friends are in like five to ten years. I feel like it would be really fun Oh my spot. gosh, I can't even imagine. Would they hope, all make it? I, I would hope they would all still be friends. They knew each other before the band, like they weren't thrust together by any sort of shady music personality, like they were already buddies. And so I would hope that they could survive the inevitable end of the band, because I'm sure it will eventually end. And then 20 years down the line, they'll do a reunion tour. Perfect. Everything I want. I want these boys to be real. I want this boy band. As I was reading it, I was like, I want to see this documentary. I, <laughs> I have an invested interest in what they're doing. Oh, it was really fun writing like the little documentary transcripts. These are the sorts of shenanigans they get up to on the bus. Love it. I still think there's, like, there's a book or a movie or something that's just entirely on a tour bus. And, like, what a nightmare that actually is for the bus driver or something. Yes. Just being like, I'm going to kill him. And you're just in a tin can barreling down the road for months on end. It's not always pleasant. Eh, what could go wrong? <laughs> you know, falling off a mountainside, toilet backs up run out of gas in the middle of the desert. All sorts of things. It'd be so much fun. I know, right? Being pursued by a frog leg magnate. It's a Muppet movie reference, though. <laughs> by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen the Muppet movie, go watch it. Brilliant. Oh, we got there eventually. I love it. 
Awesome. Oh, this has been so, so much fun. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your books now that we've talked about the perils of the internet? Where should they go find you? Uh, to see my most random thoughts, you can follow me on Twitter at Adib Koram. For pictures that are mostly of food or books and occasionally other things that interest me, you can follow me on Instagram at Adib Koram. To see me attempt to understand young people, you can follow me on TikTok at Adib.Koram because they wouldn't let me use just Adib Koram. For mostly untamed shit posts, you can follow me on Tumblr, also Adib Koram. You can find kind of all my things on my website, AdibKoram.com. And there's also a newsletter where I kind of keep you posted on what's going on. I only send it out once a month, but I've been very regular with it for the last 14 months, and I'm very proud of myself. But yeah, like it helps to have a you know somewhat unusual name in America because all of the things were open for me. It's great. No one else needed a deep Koram. Absolutely. TikTok's really messing with your brand consistency there. As far as I can tell, there is no Adib Koram without a dot. They just made me put one in because they were me being mean. It was very annoying. That's how TikTok will get you every time. You got to list them separately. It's true. Oh, I did recently have one that I was told its performance was slightly above average, and I was really proud of it. Ooh. Well, TikTok still kind of scares me a little bit, but... I'm happy for you. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's also really fun and really creative. I have a feeling we're going to see, now that some of these lyrics are out there, I have a feeling some of your fans are probably going to, I feel like we're not going to have to wait too long to see some of this music, at least some interpretations of it, for sure, on TikTok. I would be amazed to see it. I think for legal reasons, I would have hesitations about engaging with it, <laughs> but I would definitely like make a burner account so I could go watch them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Adib. This was so much fun to talk to you. I cannot wait for more people to get to read this book. And like I said, if you haven't read Darius the Great, go get it. It's amazing. You're going to love it. Trust me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and talk with you. Yeah, I hope all your listeners out there are doing well as of the time that they hear this and enjoy the book. And uh, go out there and be gay and do crimes. And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We are at BookmarkYA. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on the internet. I am on Instagram at PluckyBookmark. I hope you all enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.